Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. Today is part 28, and Pastor Jason has been talking about Stephen in chapter 7. Today let's join him in his sermon entitled, The First Martyr, Part 3, Dying Well. Let's start at verse 54, and we'll go to verse 60. Here's Jason. Well, good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Jason, and welcome to Rancho Baptist Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, especially for those of you who are new and maybe you have not ever been to Rancho Baptist Church and this is your first Sunday. Thank you for for blessing us with your presence, for coming and worshiping with us. You should have received a little welcome card in your bulletin when you came and we would really appreciate it if you could fill this out. Let us know a, a little bit about you, some sort of contact information if you had any questions about the church or prayer requests, we would love to pray for you and be in communication with you. So please let us know. For those of you that are long time members of RBC and those that have come for years and years, if you guys have prayer requests, please, please let us know. And if they're confidential, just kind of mark that off and and just we as the elders will pray for you and continue to bring you before the Lord. We are continuing our walk through the book of Acts. So you can turn with me there now to Acts chapter 7. And today we are actually going to be finishing up the life of Stephen. Who is the first martyr of Christ's church. And we've been looking at him for, for several weeks now. And today I've entitled this sermon... Dying well. And I know it's kind of a morbid topic when you, when you talk about dying, but I don't believe dying, dying always has to be something discouraging. I, I must say that I've been around quite, quite a lot of discouraging people that I would say died poorly. Rather than dying well, they died poorly. When we lived in Papua New Guinea as missionaries, before the gospel came, before they understood Christ, and they trusted Him as Savior, when they were still animists, deep into their animistic beliefs, whenever someone would die, it was a terrible thing. The entire village would stop. They would spend three days, literally three days, And wherever that person's house was, lamenting, crying as loud as they could over that particular person's body. Why? In order to appease that person so that their spirit wouldn't come back at them and do something to either them or the village. And so I have seen times where people did not die well. And yet even in when when people are dying poorly, the Lord can use it for extremely good things. And I think of... a man who maybe you've heard of, Adoniram Judson. He's a, a pretty famous missionary, which is probably why I, I, I like him so much and, and, <laughs> and think about him now and again. He ends up becoming a missionary to Burma and he translates the Bible in Burma. But, but before he became a missionary, he was kind of like the rest of us. He grew up in a home where, where 
they believed in the Bible and, and he would have called himself a believer. And then he decides when he finishes high school that he is going to go to Brown University. And when he gets to Brown University, he becomes friends, becomes a very good friend with, with a man named Jacob Eames. And the problem with Jacob Eames is that, that he's a philosopher who doesn't believe in, in the God of the Bible. He doesn't believe in the Bible. And in fact, whenever he has a chance, he just continually ridicules the God of the Bible, the Bible, and all of Judson's belief system. And over time, with, with, wicking away at it, crack by crack by crack, day after day, Judson's faith just becomes more and more deteriorated till finally he just abandons his faith steps away from from Christianity, but is fearful to tell his family about it until he graduates from Brown University. And so as he graduates, which he is actually graduates as the valedictorian, so you'd think that he had quite a successful time in college, and yet his faith was totally undermined. He tells his family that he has renounced his faith, that he's walked away from Christ, And he moves to New York in order to become a playwright and make lots of money and become, you know, rich and famous. And he goes to New York and he and he's living that life as a playwright. And yet the reality is his life was still empty. He he was disillusioned with with all that he was doing. And 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 as his life story continues on, at, at one point he's traveling And it gets to be late at night and he's traveling through a small village and he's looking for a place to stay and he ends up in an inn. And when he gets to the inn, lo and behold, there's only one room still left in that inn. And the people say, well, the reason why is because the guy next door to this room is on his deathbed and he's dying. And so nobody wants to take this room. But Judson has no other choice. So he says, "Okay, yes, I'll take this room. So he goes up and he spends the night in that room. But he doesn't sleep at all. Why? Because this man was in so much torment and so much agony and so much anguish that it just kept him up. But not only did it keep him up because of how loud the man was, but because it got into his soul. Because it brought such a fear of what is going to happen when I die. And this fear that he was struggling with was, was, was also pulling on the other side with this shame. Because he is a, he had abandoned all of that. He, he had he had listened to his friend and he and he really believed, oh, no, that's, that doesn't matter. And so all night he's he's struggling with himself and toggling between this fear and this and this shame. He wakes up or he, he gets. Up at some point, well, he's not sleeping, so it may, at some point, the, the, all the noise stops, all the groaning, the screaming, the, the yelling of this man stops. And light comes into the room and he knows that it's morning. And then he thinks, oh, man, it's okay. Man, I was just, I was just silly last night. And the despair that he had just completely lifted. And he's thinking, oh yes, that, that was, that was because of the dark and because of the loud noise and, and this and that. And he, he, he goes to the front desk to check himself out of the room and, and he asks, hey, do, do you know what happened to the man next to me? Last night, because he he stopped the screaming and and the quick terse reply was he's dead. And then Judson says, oh, well, well, do you happen to know who he was? And the man's reply is, oh, yes, he's a young man from from the college, that college in Providence. What was his name? 
Eames. Jacob Eames. And it turns out it it was this man, (laughs) this philosopher, who had told him, oh, don't believe any of that. And now when faced with the reality of death, this philosopher had a terrible, terrible death. And you know what the Lord did through that? He, he saved Adonai Judson. And, and he became one of the greatest missionaries ever to, to Burma. And he translates the Bible into Burmese. And, and what we're going to see today is, is a man who instead of dying poorly like this Jacob Eames, we're going to see a man who dies well. And I think we all need to, to come to the reality where we ask ourselves this question. How will I die? What, what do I think of that time when, when I'm faced with the reality of death? And today we're going to see some hope. This is just a wonderful passage. Turn with me to, to Acts chapter 7. So hopeful, so encouraging, so comforting is God's word, is the story of the death of Stephen. Starting in verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need you. We desperately need you to have a proper perspective on life, to have a proper perspective on death. And the only way that that we can truly have a proper perspective on these things is through your word, through how you have revealed yourself to us. So we pray now, Lord, that you would illuminate your word through your Holy Spirit, that you would make your word clear, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us to walk as Stephen walked, to live as Stephen lived, and to die as Stephen dies. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So in these short verses here, compared to the sermon that we looked at last week of, of Stephen, really this is a quick summary of, of, of Stephen's death here. And, and he does die quickly. And, and what we're going to see are, are, are basically this interaction between Stephen and, and the Sanhedrin and the crowd. This contrast between them. And first what we're going to look at is the final straw. 
And that's in verse 54. Then we're going to look at the focus upward. Again, it switches back to Stephen. First it looks at the crowd and, and their final straw. Then Stephen, the focus upward, verses 55 to 56. Then it goes back to the crowd, the fury that's unleashed in verses 57 to 58. And then finally it switches back to Stephen and the final words in 59 and 60. And, and really what, what we're going to see today is, is we're going to see these, these two large contrasts going on that, that will encourage us to die well and to live well. And, and, and what's being contrasted really is, on the one hand, the life lived in the Spirit walking in the Spirit with the life lived in the flesh. We're going to see this contrast between the love and forgiveness of Stephen and, and, and then the, the anger and the judgment on the crowd and the Sanhedrin. We're going to see this contrast really between heaven and hell. That, that's, that's where this goes. That, that's what we see in, in these verses as, as God continually points to us the staggering reality of death and life. And how does he start off? He starts off with the, the final straw. So look at verse 54 with me. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth. We, we have to recognize that, that I'm dropping us in right into basically the, the last act in, 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 in this life of Stephen. And the story did not begin in verse 54. We know that, that everything actually began quite a ways before this. And what we saw last week was the sermon of Stephen. And so when it says there, now when they heard this, what is the this referring to? It's referring to Stephen's sermon. And I believe in particular, it's referring to those last three verses that we saw in Stephen's sermon. Why? Because he becomes so pointed. And he goes at them so hard. Look, look at those verses again with me. And just think of it on the perspective of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the nation of Israel. These are the professional men that, that pride themselves on their righteousness, on their circumcision, on all these things. And look at what he says. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. That's enough right there, I, I would think, to push them over the edge. What, what is he saying? He's saying, in essence, you are like the uncircumcised Gentiles. That would be the biggest insult you could give them. But then he goes on and he says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Again, pointing it all to them and now separating himself from them, letting them know this was your father's. You're on the wrong side, as we saw last week. Finally, he says, you have received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. No doubt that was the final straw. That is what they had heard. And as they hear this, what does it say? It says they were cut to the quick. That literally means to be sawn through, 
to be cut in half, to be infuriated. And, it, and it's the idea that, that it just didn't happen without any rhyme or reason. It's the idea that Stephen's words were the instrument that was used in order to cut them right through. That it was the very preaching of Stephen that just cut right through to their hearts. And is that not what God's Word does? God's Word is compared to, to light and it's compared to a double-edged sword. And that double-edged sword is, is able to divide the soul from the spirit. It's able to go down deep, even to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that's what we see happening here. And as the word goes, we, we see that this the word goes deep into their heart. It cuts them. But it doesn't just stop at doing some sort of work inside their heart. We see it actually bubbling forth out into the way they're acting. As it says that they began gnashing their teeth at him. Literally, that's what they began doing. In, in our village, they would say when somebody's really mad, they would say that their nostrils would flare up. And that was the, their way of saying, oh man, that guy's really mad. Okay, these guys, their way of showing that they're really angry is they would gnash their teeth. That's a sign of violent rage. And it's only used here in the New Testament. And, and the tense in the Greek gives it even a greater significance that this didn't just happen right here at the end of verse 53. And it was a 10 second time where boom, for 10 seconds, they all gnashed their teeth and then they went on. No, it's a prolonged thing that was going on for quite a while. And we have to recognize, well, how did they get to this point? Was it just all of a sudden that, that we that we see that you know, this final straw. No, we, we must recognize that the hardening of their hearts began several chapters ago, several months ago as far as their lives go, right? This is the third time where someone has come and preached to them. The first time was Peter, right after the paralyzed man was healed back in Acts chapter 4. And then in Acts chapter 5, after they had said, no, it's forbidden for you to preach in this name of Jesus, what happens? They again grab Peter and this time the apostles are with him. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel again and they hear it again. And now this is a third time. Each time their hearts become more and more calloused. Until finally their, their heart bursts. And as they would say in, in our village, their heart bursts and they became set on fire. That's how angry and upset they were. And it was the final straw. But, but there's even more to this. Because as you look at the term that it uses to describe them, saying that they gnash their teeth at Stephen, we must recognize where this is used elsewhere in the Scriptures. And this phrase, gnashing the teeth, is used by our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, seven times. And it's, and it's in the context of describing something very significant. Matthew thirteen forty one to 42 Jesus says this. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and they will throw them into the furnace of fire into the place where there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Perhaps the reason why Luke pens it like this is the Lord is even trying to give them an illusion, an understanding of what the future looked like for these men. For these men who are gnashing their teeth now in anger, they would be gnashing their teeth in pain for all of eternity if they did not, what? If they did not repent and change sides. And yet the reality is we don't see anything from Scripture other than Saul of any of these men repenting. Man, this is a sobering reality. And so many people don't even want to talk about hell, and yet it was one of the things that Christ mentioned the most. It is a reality, and it is something that we should all fear. And yet for those of us that have trusted in Christ, we don't need to fear hell. We can rejoice in the hope that we have as we will see in the life of, and the death of Stephen, which is so amazing. And so we see for the Sanhedrin, for these men, that this was the final straw. And they're responding in anger and hostility and in just being completely infuriated. But how does Stephen respond? What, what does Stephen look like in contrast? And the first thing that we see with Stephen is that he has a focus. And his focus is upward. Look at verse 55 and 56. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Remember, Stephen hadn't mentioned Jesus yet. This is the first time. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now our English translations don't, don't do a real good sufficient job of translating that, that verb being. Being full of the Spirit. We know that we have already seen that Stephen's, one of the characteristics of his life is that he is a man full of the Holy Spirit, right? That's why he was chosen earlier in Acts to be one of the seven that would look after those widows who were being overlooked. And we also know, even from looking at his sermon, that he was a man controlled by the Spirit in order to preach the Word like he did. But here, this, this isn't just merely saying that he was full of the Spirit at this point. That at this point, the Spirit came upon him. And then he was being controlled. No, it's, it's the idea that he was continually being filled by the Holy Spirit. That he was continually being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And, and we know that, it's the, that, that the Word of God teaches us that the Spirit is that which gives added strength, courage, and the ability to stand up well under severe persecution. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.14, he says this, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. And that is what Stephen is representing now. But we have to recognize that in order for someone to die well, they have to live well. This wasn't just a new shirt that Stephen put on. And as he gets close to his deathbed, he puts on the shirt and now all of a sudden gets serious about the Lord. No, this is the way that Stephen has lived his entire life since he got saved. And then it goes on. And it says that he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. 
This is the same word used back in Acts 1.10 with the apostles as Jesus ascends, as they're gazing intently at him. But, but why? Why at this point? He no doubt knows that his life is, man, teetering on the edge. He could die at any moment. And yet he chooses to stop and rivet his eyes on heaven. It doesn't tell us why he was doing that, but I suspect he was looking to heaven to, to possibly see the Lord. And, and you know what? That's what happens. As then it says that, that the heavens opened. The idea here isn't that some wind came and it was because of some natural normal phenomenon that, that all of a sudden it opened up and, no, it's the idea that God opened up the heavens like any other, not like any other time before. This isn't a, an everyday occurrence where all of a sudden the heavens open up and you get a glimpse into what's going on in the eternal realm. <laughs> this is God doing this in order to bless his servant Stephen. And, and then he, he says that he sees someone. And the word that he uses to describe Jesus is, is incredibly significant. He, he says that he looks up and he sees the Son of Man. I believe that, that this might be the strongest statement that Stephen makes in his entire sermon. Because of the significance behind it. For this word, this, this phrase, son of man, the only other person that uses this in the scripture is Jesus himself talking about himself. Stephen is the only one else who uses this. And what is he getting at? He's getting at this idea that Jesus is not just 100% man, but he is indeed 100% God. He is fully man and he is fully God. And is that significant? That's so significant that they would call that heresy if he were not God. Do you remember back in, in Mark chapter 14 when it comes to the trial of Jesus and they've made the accusations against him and now they're waiting for him to respond and he's not responding. And this is what the high priest finally says to him. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Notice how he says son of God, not son of man. And Jesus said to him, that is the high priest, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, so just so that Jesus knows, so that they know without a shadow of a doubt that this is what he is claiming. This is what he says. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man referring to himself, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was this so-called blasphemy that they put Jesus on the cross for and they murdered him. And now what is Stephen doing? Stephen is taking that very fact of what Jesus had told to this very high priest. Remember, this was the high priest that had asked Stephen now to give a defense. And that's who is now before him. He is telling them that exactly what Jesus said was going to happen back in Mark has indeed happened. In fact, not only has it happened, but I'm looking at it right now. He's taking that fact and really he's just rubbing it in their faces. And he's letting them know that what Christ said has been fulfilled and that he is in glory right now. And no doubt this is too much for them, right? That if the final straw happened before, then what's going to happen now? Well, well what's going to happen now is, is their fury is unleashed. 
Look at verse 57. As it says, But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at Him with one impulse. This word cried out, it's not your normal just crying, talking in kind of a, you know, a loud voice. (laughs) No, this is a screaming. This is a shrieking. This is a vehement outcry that is so loud that it's unpleasant for those that are hearing. And it could be part of the reason why they cover their ears and that is what they do. Literally, they are covering, covering their ears. It could be part of that reason is because they were screaming so loud that they didn't want to bother their own ears. And covering their ears, they could just scream unabashed as loud as they possibly could. But why are they screaming? Why are they literally covering their ears? Because they have had enough. They don't want to hear any more of what this guy has to say. He keeps talking about the Messiah. The other guys talked about Messiah. Now we're going to hear it again. No, we're done. They want to stop what he is saying. They want to silence him. And so they drown out the words of Stephen. Basically, they're they're faced with two options, right? Either they accept what he's saying and they repent and they say, yes, we confess, we murder our own Messiah. What must we do to be saved as has happened before? Or they reject his teaching and they harden their hearts, which we've already seen, and they silence him. But they intend to do more than just silencing him. Because look at verse 58. They, they, they have much more in store. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Okay, why take, them out of, why take him out of the city? Why not just leave him right there and just get the stones and pile and be done with it? For that matter... Why are these witnesses laying aside their, their robes too? Well, it's because they're, they're following a certain practice, a certain protocol. It, it's, it's the way that, that Leviticus 24 told them that they needed to carry out this process. And yet at the same time, even though they're carrying out part of the process, there's much of the process that they've just abandoned. Because during this time, yes, that was a means by which they could execute someone meaning the Jewish people could, but they could only do that if the Romans had given them approval. And we see none of that in this text. There's no Romans there giving them a thumbs up. And what's really significant is, is, is the fact that it, it says in our, in our Bibles, at least in mine, that when you, see, when you look at that word describing the stoning, it says they began stoning. And that's in italics. Why? Because that's not in the original. That's a word that the translators added in order to give the nuance, the understanding of of that verb in the Greek. And And it is the idea that this was not a quick process. This wasn't just drop one stone and then you're done. No, this was a long, drawn out thing. Why? Because they wanted to give him pain. And yet this wasn't the way that it was supposed to be done. And even though they have witnesses that take off their robes, which was normal, there's so many things that aren't normal. The normal process is that first you'd have to get the A-OK from the Romans. Then you'd have to let him know that, that he has been found guilty. You don't see that. And then they take him out 
And then the first thing that you do is you drop him off of a cliff. And you hope that when you drop him off that cliff, which different commentators say how tall it was. Some say 10 feet. Some say it's twice the, the size of the man. So depending on how tall you are, it would depend on how big the cliff was. But when they drop you off the cliff, their hope was that you would die. Because they didn't want to do the stoning. But if that person didn't die, then it was the job of the first witness to then take a great big stone, walk over to that person and drop it upon their head. And they were still hoping at that time that that was done, that they wouldn't have to go any further. But if he didn't die, then then it was the time for the second witness to do the same thing. But we see all of that abandoned. And, and, and we see them rushing into this, grabbing him and taking him out of the city. You know, the word rushing, that, that it's brought about in verse 57 to describe how they rushed upon him with one impulse. That's the same word used to describe how the, the pigs are running over the cliff and plunging into the water when Jesus cast out all those demons from, from the man. And in essence, what, what, what it's revealing to us is, is these sophisticated Sanhedrin men, these supreme court judges, so to speak, they abandon all normalcy and, and basically they're going crazy. Everything has been turned upside down and it turns into a total mob scene. And that's what is happening. And so these, these men, they take off their robes and they lay them at the feet of a man whose name is Saul. And that is significant because Saul is going to become the Apostle Paul. And he's going to become the, the main figure just as... Peter has been the main figure up to this point in Acts. Paul becomes the main figure in the second half of the book of Acts. And he's the one who takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And yet this is the first mention that we see of Saul. and he, We know that this is a significant time for him because when, when we will get to Acts 22, and I promise we'll get to Acts 22, and unless the Lord comes and takes us all, then... We'll, we'll hear it from, from Luke himself. But when we get to Acts chapter 22, we're, we're going to see that Paul looks back on this time and talks about this very occasion and this circumstance. And so we see, we see this, this contrast going on, this, this fury that's being unleashed. And it's just starting. They've just begun this process of throwing the stones at Stephen. And, and yet, what is Stephen's response? And his response are, are three phrases that he gives. And, and the first phrase that, that we've already seen was, Behold, I see the heavens open. Isn't it, isn't it amazing that it wasn't enough for Stephen just to merely view what was going on in heaven? He wanted them to know exactly what he was seeing in order, no doubt, to cause them to repent and to turn. But his first phrase that he speaks is talking about Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to the final words of Stephen, the phrases that he says are to Jesus Christ, as if he were there with him. And he is looking at him. So look at verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
This reminds us of what we what we saw earlier in Acts chapter two, where it says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That that's what Stephen and that's what the Lord is letting us know. That all those who call upon him will be saved. That even those that were stoning Stephen at this point, if they had turned in repentance to the Lord, they would have been saved. Just as Stephen is turning to the Lord, calling upon him and asking him to receive his spirit. There are many similarities that we see between Stephen's death and the Lord Jesus Christ's death, right? Here is one of them. As, as Stephen says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus says in Luke 24, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We see some similarities. There's also dissimilarities. Jesus commits his own spirit. Why? Because he's God. Stephen is asking Jesus to take care of his spirit. Why? Because he's not God. Why? Because he recognizes that Jesus holds his soul, that Jesus holds his life. And so as such, he is petitioning, Jesus, please take care of my soul, my eternal soul. Man, isn't that sweet? And I think it also lets us know that he's talking right now, receive my spirit. It's not talking about some intermittent time that happens when, when, when somebody dies, that, 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 that there's like a pause button that's pushed. As some would talk about these days now, soul sleep, which teaches when a person dies, that, that his soul sleeps until the time of the future resurrection. We, we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. We, we don't see that in the life of Stephen. We, we don't see that even in the parable of the rich man. And Lazarus in Luke 16. You don't see it with the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Now today you're going to enter with me into paradise. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord if you are a child of God. But then he goes on. He doesn't just call upon the Lord, but then, he, then we see the end here. Look at verse 60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. This word, this, this verb falling, a test with on his knees, is, is really significant. I had no idea what this meant. And as I searched and searched and, and followed Luke and how he uses that verb with, with that phrase attached to it, do you know that every time that Luke uses this verb, it's in the context of praying? That is what Stephen is doing here. You may think that the stones have dropped him, but no, he is kneeling down in order to pray. And we're going to see this phrase used if we went back to Luke 22 and looked at Jesus in the garden. It's the same phrase that Luke uses there. To talk about Jesus praying, kneeling. And later on in Acts 20, when, when the Apostle Paul meets up with the Ephesian elders and, and, and he prays for them, what does he do? He gets on his knees and he prays. That, that's what Stephen is doing. But he's not just doing that. It also says he cried out with a loud voice. This is the same verb used in 57 when they were crying out, screaming, trying to silence Stephen and drown out his speech. 
Now he's doing the same thing. Why? In order to show them love and forgiveness. Above anything else. No doubt it was majorly crazy with everybody throwing stones at him. And all the noise and everything. So what did he do? He wanted to scream out louder than they were. And offer forgiveness. And that's why he says, do not hold this sin against them. He doesn't make it sound nice. Oh, don't hold this throwing of stones against them. No, he calls it sin because that's what it is. That is what they are doing. And literally what that's talking about is it's, it's referring to something that's rendered as an entry in a ledger. To a debt incurred for a wrong done. A departure from divine standards of uprightness. Indeed, it is missing the mark. And they have missed the mark. And yet what really Stephen is praying for, what he is urging for, is their salvation. Because there is no way that Christ will not hold their sin against them unless they repent and turn to Him for salvation. You can't have one without the other. So the only way that this will happen is if they repent and turn to Him. And then look at the last phrase. So strange. Having said this, he fell asleep. What? (laughs) Okay, maybe it's just me, but... I mean, there's a big stoning going on. There's just violence everywhere, craziness everywhere. And and then Luke chooses to pen this. How? That when it came time for him to die, because this is a euphemism for dying, when it came time for him to die, he does it in such a way where he says that he fell asleep. Why is that? To desensitize death? No. To show how significant it is for a believer. That for us, leaving this world, going into the next, is a peaceful transition into real life. And and that's what Stephen's death represents. It's it's really a peaceful sleep where where one goes to bed thinking in, in our terms of the craziness of this life and the work that still needs to be done and all the hardships and, and, and instead one wakes up to a fresh new world completely devoid of sin and and wrapped in the arms of our Heavenly Father. That's what this picture is. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Turn, turn with me if it's on a different page for you. Back to, to verse 56. I, I skipped over this and, and yet it is so significant that I want to end with this. Remember what what Stephen says. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Did you catch that? This is after the ascension. This is the first person that has ever seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Moses, there's been many that have seen the glory of God. This is the first person ever to see Jesus in the the ascension. When he's in heaven now. And yet, instead of saying that Jesus is seated, that he is seating at the right hand, that he is seated at the right hand, it says he is standing. Well, why is Jesus standing and not sitting? We know that Hebrews and various other places in Scripture 
says it like this. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. What is the author of Hebrews getting at? He's doing this contrast. He's doing this contrast between the normal priest and Jesus, the high priest of us all. Revealing that the normal priest, the temple priest, they always had to stand because there were no seats in the temple. It was a picture that their job was never, ever, ever done. Whereas Jesus, he comes and he sits. Why? To show that his work was completed once and for all. Amen. Amen. And so, but, but why, Pastor Jason, is he standing? I don't get it. Okay, well, let, let me tell you two reasons that are so encouraging. This is so cool. The reason why Jesus is standing. First, I believe it's to welcome home his servant. To welcome home his first martyr in his church. To encourage him. I've got you. Second reason might, might be even more significant. I believe he's standing as his advocate. That's what that means. When someone would, would work the work as like an advocate in a court system, what does he do? He stands. He stands as a witness, as a defender of that particular person. That is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is telling the heavenly father, this one is mine. This one is mine. And no doubt that the Lord Jesus took his side, pleaded his case, and prevailed. And just as Stephen had confessed Christ before men, so Christ is now standing to confess him before the angels of God. What a picture of grace. What a picture of hope. What a comfort to us. For those of us that have trusted Christ. For those that have not. Man, recognize you do not know where you will be at the end of this day. Now is the time. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you even understand what that means? Do you know that He came to die on the cross, not for His sins, because He's perfect? We've seen that already. He came to die for those that would trust in Him. And that if you would believe unto Him, then he will grant you salvation and he will be there just like he is with Stephen. Am I saying that all of us are going to have this grandiose experience like Stephen did and heavens are going to open up when we die? No. But the Lord Jesus will be our advocate and we'll, we, we will be ushered into heaven. Points to ponder. Some things to consider. Consider how Stephen kept looking above, as Colossians 3.1 says, seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. How often do you look above? Ask God to help you live with an eternal mindset, no matter what your circumstances look like today. This, this mindset that Stephen had. Number two, consider Stephen's desire to forgive those who are stoning him. What does this teach you about forgiveness? Is there someone in your life who God might be reminding you to forgive today, right now, through this example of Stephen? You know, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? You're here for a reason this morning, here in this particular sermon, because of how good our God is. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we stop and, and we thank you for making yourself known. We thank you for giving us an example like Stephen. And we recognize that we fall far too short of Stephen. Help us to live like Stephen. Controlled by your spirit, seeking you, living with an eternal perspective, looking to you above. So that when it comes time for for us to leave this world, that we would die as Stephen died. Giving you glory and honor. Lifting your name high above all other names. For it's in the matchless, wonderful name of our risen Lord and Savior, the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.